as a part of what our church body is doing, um, there's a general rhythm to our, our year. Obviously, as we're getting close to Easter and Resurrection Sunday, we're, we're celebrating Lent. But also, uh, we try to have a pretty regular sermon series on identity and involving stewardship and money and things like that. So we're beginning that today. It's entitled, Someone Else's Money. How it's going to work is there's going to be rotating sermons for the first three weeks. So right now, Travis is teaching at West Lynn and Scott is teaching at Gladstone. Next week, I'll go to West Lynn. Travis will go to Gladstone and I believe Scott will be here and we'll just rotate through that way. So this, this same sermon that I'm teaching today will be the same one at West Lynn if you go there next week. Okay. So just to be prepared. These first three sermons of our six week series is going to be a foundational series, conceptual, if you will. So that's why we can do them kind of out of order because they're all foundational that we're going to build off of. Then the final three weeks, two weeks in March and one week in April, we're going to hit actual, put some legs on these concepts and these foundations and really practical. Now that's not to say over the next three weeks we're not going to have practical things in our sermons. It's just saying that's the focus is going to be a lot more practical for those final three. So I have been given the, the task of talking about stewardship as a way of life. So the passage we're going to be in is uh, Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. And we'll get there in a few minutes, but uh, I want to start off with a story. This is totally not my life story, but as a father of three, I probably have done something similar to this, usually when my wife's not with me, and you'll understand why in a second. So a father and a son are traveling down the road together, and as usual, the son goes, Dad, I'm hungry. And, and it's because he saw a certain restaurant as you are driving down the street. And that restaurant elicits a Pavlovian response to wanting their French fries. Okay, you can guess which one we're talking about. So as a father, the father pulls over and says, yes, let's do this. So he wants to see his son happy. He wants to see the joy of eating French fries that no matter how long you leave them out, they never go stale. That's a magical thing that they do. So the father sits down and he he gives the boy a steaming little bin of French fries. And he just loves watching his son eat that. And he knows this is what his son wants. Even though, yes, as a son, many times the mouth is a little too open for us parents. Not seeing the food is a good idea, but that happens from time to time. But the father's enjoying the fact that his son is happy. And then the father does what fathers do, and he reaches over to take the French fry. A French fry. In this story, as the father reaches over, the little boy goes, No, Dad! They're mine. Get your own. Now, that's probably not the response most parents would stand for. But in this story, the father allows it to slide. But as the father and son are driving down the road, silently, the father is thinking, oh, you know, I gave that son every single fry. And he wasn't even willing to share one with me. My son misses the point. My son doesn't realize that I could have given him no fries or I could have given him so many fries, he'd be sick of fries. The father is sitting there and he is overwhelmed by the fact that his son doesn't get the free gift that he was given. And the father ultimately wanted to have the son reciprocate that love that he gave him in giving him those fries. 
And that's, that's the picture that we see here. And this is what we're going to be talking about. And this is going to tie into this idea of stewardship. Because as a parent, I would want my child to respond with, sure, dad, that's awesome. How many would you like? Right? As a parent, I know that that usually doesn't happen. Because all I wanted was one. Did I need the french fry? No. My waistline tells me I don't. But the son needs to understand that in acknowledging the father's ownership and the father's gift of every single fry by giving it back to him, it's a way of saying, Dad, I love you. Dad, I honor you. Dad, I recognize my relationship to you. So when we look at stewardship, we're going to look not just at what we need to do with our money. That's going to be someone else's sermon. What we're looking at today is we're looking at why it is that we have what we have. This is an all-encompassing um, idea. It's not just money. It's not just you know possessions. It's all of life. And so when we look at Matthew, you're going to see that. So let's dig into it. We're going to go ahead and I'll, I'll read it to you, starting in verse 14. And I think it'll also be up here. Yes. For it'll be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five more. The master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his manser answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I could have received what was my own with interest. So take that talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's a pretty powerful parable. Um, This is one of many of Jesus' parables that deals with money. He spends a lot of time talking about money and possessions. So what we're going to do is we're going to walk through this passage and there's really a, some people in this passage. We got to figure out who they are and then that will tie into what this means to us today. So the second word of uh, the, the, the parable, for it. So what is it? Well, 
It is the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus has been talking about this entire section is him explaining what the kingdom of heaven or synonymously the kingdom of God is like. Now, what does this mean? Kingdom of God. Well, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So it's this idea of being under his kingdom. No surprise, when you have a kingdom, you must have a king. So we're, we're, we, we struggle right off the bat with this talking about kingdom because we don't have a king. We have a president, right? We, we have a president. Like or dislike, presidents go away after four years, sometimes after eight. Whereas a king, you're stuck with for, for life. And as the king is the one who owns the most land, usually in the country. And so we struggle with this idea of king, but it ties right into what this entire parable is about. This entire parable is about the master's relationship to the servants, these, these people that he's chosen to give his stuff to, to entrust his stuff to. So there are four people in this sermon we have, or in this passage. We have the master. We have two faithful servants, and then we have that wicked, lazy, slothful servant. But really, there's three roles. You've got faithful, you've got the lazy, and you've got the master. So there's, there's really three points to this. Um, the first one deals with the master. The master entrusts his servants with his possessions. He then expects them to do something with them. So that's the first point with the master. The second point would be the two faithful servants go out and use the master's material possessions, the money, and they get commended and rewarded for it. And the third point is that the lazy, wicked servant fails to know the master, so therefore does not do anything with the master's goods and gets punished by separation from God. So who is this master, this master that entrusts us with everything and expects something back from us? Well, this master is God in this, in this parable. It's probably Jesus indirectly, but Jesus is part of the triune God, so we get that. This master has gone on a journey. He has lots of property. He has servants. His servants call him master. There's a recognition there. So he goes away. This reminds us of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And after a long time, Jesus will come back, like in 1 Thessalonians, where it says, For you yourselves are aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. So the first thing we see is that God has gone away and he's left his stuff here. He's left us in charge of his stuff, just like the master. Now, this property that the master is leaving them is enormous, right? It says one talent, right? What, what, what does a talent mean? Now, it's, it's really nice that the Lord had the people back then using a term that translates right into what we believe today. I have talents. You have talents. Some people have lots of talents. It's nice, right? But back then, the word talent was a measurement of weight. And so that's how they paid people was in the weight of things, all right? And so a talent was worth about 6,000 denaria, and that should Probably clear it up, right? Except for we don't know what a denarii is, right? Well, Bible scholars do, and they've looked it up, and I'm just going to borrow from them. So a denarii is a day's wages. So imagine 6,000 days wages, right? That's a lot of money. Um, in modern day time, it would be somewhere, one talent would be about 250000 to $600,000. So that lazy, wicked servant got $250,000 by comparison. And then the, the, the five talents would be about 1.2 to 3.1 million dollars. So we're talking lots and lots of money, right? 
Uh, more money than, than someone can spend in a lifetime, but we'd all like to volunteer to try, right? So, does the master need this money? No, if he's got this much money to loan to servants, he's rolling in it, right? He's Scrooge McDuckin' it, right? He's got more money than he knows what to do with. But yet, he loans it to the servants. He gives it to them. And the reason for it, we'll see at the very end, is that it's to confirm the servants belonging to the master by what you do with the master's goods. So, This money is representative of not just our money. Like I told you, this is not just a money sermon. Your money belongs to God. It's more than that, right? It's everything belongs to God. All of the things we have. We have not only talents, not only money, not only possessions. We have life. Life is a gift from the Lord. And so we need to recognize that everything belongs to Him. And, and, And no surprise here, this is throughout the Bible. The Bible has this throughout. I'm going to cherry pick some of my favorite ones. Psalm 24.1, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. I love how the psalmist repeats himself to clarify everything in it, but not the people. No, everything alive. Deuteronomy 10.14, to the Lord your God belong the heavens, the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. First Chronicles 29.11 Yours, Lord, is the greatest, the power, the glory, the majesty. Everything in heaven on earth is yours. Job, God responds, they respond to God, everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 50, one of my favorites. For every animal of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, the insects in the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Fits perfectly with that song that we sang at the end, My Father's House. This is all His. And I love that, that line where it says, the birds are singing carols to God. I mean, the birds are starting to chirp now, and it's, it's amazing. Those are praise songs, right? The sound of the, the crickets rubbing their legs together is praise to God because they're His. So this idea of stewardship starts with the idea of we have to carefully and responsibly manage God's stuff. So that's everything. That's every single thing we'll encounter. Every person that we'll encounter. Every waking hour of our lives, we're to be stewarding the gift of life for the Lord. One author says, There's not a square inch of the whole domain of human existence which Christ who is sovereign over all, does not call mine. That's mine, that's mine, that's mine. Alright? It's not like the children in the nursery. That's mine. And they take the thing that they have five of, but the other kid has the sixth one, right? That's not the way it works. These are literally gods. Everything in this universe has His name stamped on it because it's His. So it's easy for us. We'll go, yeah, okay, well, I get it. All the stuff God has made, but I'm my own person, right? I'm, I'm me. I, I, I have autonomy. Self-law is what that word means. I am a law to myself. I control myself. Well, the Bible doesn't let us off the hook that easy. 1 Corinthians six nineteen and 20. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Romans 14, 7 and 8 say the same. None of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we belong to the Lord. So, Master calls his servants. He says, here's my stuff. Do something with it 
for me. See, God is the center of the universe. He's the only true glorious being. We're nothing by comparison. But when God gives us life, when God gives us His stuff to glorify Him, we come into His orbit and we're able to actually matter in the big scheme of things. See, our possessions are about our hearts. Just like with the father and the son and the, the story I shared at the beginning, the father didn't need a french fry. But what he wanted to see was he wanted to see the son's heart. And that simple french fry scenario showed where this, the child's heart was. The same thing goes for our possessions. And the same thing goes for these servants. So God entrusts us with everything we have, expecting us to faithfully use it for his glory. So now who are these servants? Well, first off, their names come from the fact that God, the master, has chosen them. It's not a man who was a servant, a woman who was a servant, a plumber who God made a servant. Their total identity in this parable is the fact that they are servants. So how did they get this identity? Well, the master has chosen them. There's no implication that they volunteered and said, ooh, pick me, pick me. It says the master gave to the servants. He gave them their talents. And notice it says based on their abilities. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But there's a, there's a knowledge here. The master knows his servants. There's intimacy there. So the master has chosen to give his servants exactly what they can handle. The master has chose us and given us exactly what we can handle. Some he's given a lot more. Some he's given a lot less. But praise be to God that he's given us anything. So our abilities come from the Lord. And again, this is in the Bible throughout, but here's some of my favorites. Deuteronomy 8.18, But remember the Lord your God, for it is He who has given you the ability to produce wealth. It's not your degree. It's not your training. It's not diplomas. It's not your skill. It's God who has given you the ability to produce the wealth. 1 Samuel 2.7, The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and He exalts. We have to recognize the master, recognize his authority. But tragically, these servants, there's two that get it and there's one that doesn't. The faithful servants knew the master and loved him and wanted to make him happy. The lazy servant doesn't know the master and instead has no clue how to make him happy. This is a tragic story. The evil servant, the wicked servant is the climax of the parable. Maybe even the main point. So these faithful servants, starting in verse 14, faithfully use your gift of everything and this will earn us praise and reward. So that's, that's our second point. Faithfully using the gift of everything from the Lord will earn us praise and reward. So the two faithful servants, one of the things that is, is, is amazing here is in verse 16, it says out, they went out immediately. There's an immediacy, right? They don't know how long the master's going to be until he comes back. Same thing for us today. We don't know when the master is going to call us home or when he's going to return. And so we don't know how much time we have. These servants didn't want to waste a second. They got to it immediately. And just like the master who loved you and gave you your gifts, we are to love the master and use his gifts. So we're waiting. We're looking. We're, we're ready for him to come back. We're to be serving and we're to be using the talents, the gifts, the possessions, the life that he's given us faithfully we are given these talents we don't earn them first corinthians 4 7 for who receives sees anything different in you what do you have that you did not receive 
If then you've received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Again, this is a gift. You've been given a gift. We've been given a gift. What are we going to do with it? So what part do we play? Well, you know, that idea of God giving talents based on ability, that's a, that's a, that's a literal translation. It works good. But that word ability is the word dynamus, which sounds like dynamite because that's where we got the word dynamite. Dynamite, dynamus means power or capability. And so the idea here is that the Lord gives you stuff that fits your capabilities. Right. And so that's what we're supposed to see it as, not as, oh, I've been given so little or this person's been given so much. It's to say God has given me exactly what I need to move forward. First, Peter, from a few weeks ago, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified. So you're responsible for using your gifts, but tapping into his strength. So. It's like this chain, right? You got over here, God made you. And before He made you, He decided what talents and gifts you were going to have. And when we acknowledge Him as servant, we take those gifts and we give them back to Him. Well, that's too much for us. Our capabilities are, we're going to mess it up. And so God sent the Holy Spirit to give us the ability to use those gifts for Him. So God created us, gave us the gifts at the correct amount, and then gives us the strength, the power, the dynamis to then use that rightly all for His glory. So it's God, 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 God all the way through. And where we get into trouble is when we decide to say, well, yeah, God, God, but this is all me, right? And that's the problem we run into. So we have a great privilege. We have an opportunity to be able to use these gifts Because what the Lord is looking at, what the Master is wanting, is He's wanting faithfulness. Faithfulness. And ultimately, this His return that we see in this this parable is not about uh, even the reward yet. Because the reward says you're going to enter into it. Instead, it's about separating the real servants from the fake servants. And so we see that starting in verse 19. Two servants are really living, and one is only partly living. The two servants are not wasting their opportunity, but one is. When the master comes back, he's going to separate out the sheep from the goats. The sheep go in, further up and further in, right? C.S. Lewis's famous quote, and the goats go out forever. And so this is a a separating. There's a sense of um, excitement on the part of the two servants. That's kind of lost in our English translations, but the idea here is that they run forward. Ooh, look, look what I got. Reminding me of when I get home and my kids have made something and they're so excited they can't wait to run and share it with me. That's what we have here. These, these, these servants are so excited. Master, master, look at, I got you five more. Isn't that amazing? And then look at the reward. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay. Wasn't he already their master? Yeah, but now it's confirmed. The joy that you are going to experience, the joy of your master being proud of you, happy, pleased with you, confirms that he is your master, that you are his servant. Now, there's identical praise for both of the servants. This is very encouraging to me. Because what it means is, it's not about how much you produce, it's about how faithful you are in the producing of it. And isn't God great? Because so many other religions, well, you've got to do this much in order to be saved. You've got to do this much to reach enlightenment. You've got to do this. That's not the way it works in Christianity. 
in biblical Christianity, it's about how faithful are you going to be with what I've given you. And then this reward is, is probably an allusion to the, the banquet that we're going to be, be at in heaven, this intimate relationship. And I don't know how this is going to work, and I don't think anybody else does either, how it is that we're going to be in heaven someday with millions of fellow believers, and yet God's going to be more intimate there with us, all of us at once, than He is right here and right now. I don't know what that looks like, but I can't wait to experience that, because that's just as mind-boggling, the idea of intimate with millions. But that, isn't that going to be awesome? And that's the picture that we see here. The wicked servant's punishment is separation from the master's presence. And that's the punishment. That's the worst punishment we could ever imagine. Again, faithfulness. The master says you're faithful over a little. That was millions of dollars. That's a little? Yeah, by God's reckoning, that's little. That's small compared to everything. This idea of standing before God and giving an account, uh, we see in Romans 14. 10 and 12, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat and each of us will give an account of himself to God. 1 Corinthians 4, 2, moreover, it is required of servants that they be found faithful. 1 Peter 4, 10, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good servants, good stewards of God's grace. Colossians 3:23. work heartily for the Lord and not for men. So it's really easy um, to kind of get lost in these commands to do something. All right. Notice these commands to do come after God has poured his love out on us, his calling of us, his calling him servants. We can't forget that. So what is our response to this love that he has poured out on us? Is it faithfulness? Okay, Lord, you've given me these things. I'm going to use them for your glory. Or is it like the little boy with the French fry? And mine! God, these are mine. Don't touch it. Right? If you love me, you will obey my commandments. He loved us so we could love him. We love him and we'll get joy in his commandments. One author writes, If you've stored up your treasures in heaven, Christ's return will not take treasures from us, but bring treasures to us. Christ will return the th- turn the thief analogy on its head because the faithful believer will not become poorer when Christ returns, but immeasurably richer. So, from the two faithful servants, we learn faithfully using our gifts will earn us praise and reward. Now in verses 24 through 30, we get to the wicked, the lazy servant. And this is where it gets a little more serious, more tragic. Those who fail to use the gifts from the Lord will earn punishment and separation from God. Those who fail to use the gifts from the Lord will earn punishment and separation from God. The tragedy of wasted opportunity. Now, we can think things like, you know, this servant who got the one. I mean, doubling that would have been a whole lot easier than doubling five, right? So what's this lazy servant's problem? But... If we think about it, that's not the way our minds usually go, is it? It's not, oh, I just have one skill. It'd be so easy to use this for the Lord. No, instead we look horizontally and we look around and we go, well, of course they can do stuff for the Lord. They got like 20 skills. And look at this one over here. They got 15 skills. I have this one talent. What good am I? That shows our incorrect view of talents. 
that we are not worried about faithfulness, but we're worried about what we can produce with that. I, I struggle with this because the Lord has called me to things in my life that um, by the world standards, I've been a train wreck at. Um, I'm, I've, I've been a head football coach, a varsity football coach for the last six years, and I have the lowest winning percentage in the history of my school. Does that look good on a resume? No. I've had people ask me, oh, you ever want to play? You want to coach at a different level? I'm like, yeah, the junior high level looks great. You know, can I coach fourth graders? Because that's about the only people that would take me. But that's not what the Lord called me to when he called me to be a football coach. I looked at football coaching as a ministry. There's so many boys that don't have a good outlet for their aggressions and their frustration and not having a father figure and being able to step in and be a father figure and point them to the ultimate father is way more important. And I pray that ultimately that that has been successful. I have been faithful in it. I pray. I hope the Lord will see it as faithful. But by the world standards, it's a train wreck. So when, when we look at the stuff that we have and we judge them based on the world standards, we're always going to look like we're not doing what we're supposed to. But what the Lord demands is faithfulness. And then the results are up to him. Right? We are to do all things, no matter how small, as if they were the greatest things because the one who we're doing it for is the greatest thing. Right? It's that idea of using it for him. So how does this servant respond? Well, the first thing he does is he defends himself. Right? That's what we would do. We do something wrong. We go, oh, wait, wait. You know, actually, it's your fault. I mean, you know, I love my kids, but they're really good at telling me it's my fault that they broke the rules. You know, that, that's, that's the way we try to defend and justify ourselves. He's sitting right over here, too, so you guys can talk to him about that afterwards. Had he truly, had the servant truly loved the master, he wouldn't try to blame the master. Instead, he would love and say, yes, master, here. He, he, the master just wants you to be like the master. The servant needs to just be like the master. The master has given him everything. So why wouldn't he use everything? Instead, the servant keeps it to himself. There's no faithfulness here. Did the master need his stuff? Nope. Didn't need it at all. But instead, the lazy servant didn't know the master. He was kidding himself. The lazy servant calls himself a servant. He says, you're the master. But there's no fruit and there's no knowledge of the master. So really, is he a servant? So this final servant isn't what we expect from a lot of the parables. This is not an atheist. This is not a wicked, God-hating person. This is not a Christ-rejecting individual. This person has acknowledged that there is a master. He says he's a servant. He didn't waste the master's goods like we've seen in other parables Right? The prodigal son or any of these other parables where they go and they waste God's stuff. Instead, this person does nothing with it. This is lip service. Look at what he says. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. They're yours. See, we do this, right? And this is where it gets really kind of ow, right? Is that we do this. We say everything belongs to God. It's his but then we go and we live our lives and we act exactly like they're not. What good is saying, God, your Lord, if you don't go out and live like it? And so that's where this servant is. He never knew the master. He instead puts a caricature of him. And so therefore he doesn't invest in what the master says. Notice he says, you are ungracious, unmerciful, reaping where you do not sow. 
Now, what I find interesting about this is that the wicked servant is not describing the master. The master does not say, oh, you're right, I'm just like that. The master kind of flips it on its ears and says, well, if I was that bad, why wouldn't you at least invest it? But this description of the master by the servant is actually a really good description of the servant. What did the servant do to get the talent, the 6,000 denarii? Nothing, right? He did nothing. What, what did the servant do to get chosen by the master? Nothing. So if there's anyone who's ungracious, who's unmerciful, who's lacking compassion, who is sowing, reaping where he doesn't sow, it's this wicked servant. And see, that's what happens. When we don't have the master as our God, we'll make anything else our God. And our culture is full of a little g gods that people worship. And many times it's themselves. So this wicked servant does not submit to the Lord. He does not submit to God's ownership. Instead, he makes an idol of himself, doing nothing, no worship, no gladly giving. And then the punishment is, you are away from the master. So this third point, those who fail to use the gifts from the Lord will earn punishment and separation from God. So, as we summarize this parable as a whole, there's three servants. Two knew him and get to know him better. One didn't know him and therefore never will know him. The faithful will be further blessed. The unfaithful will lose everything. The point cannot be missed. Before the Son of Man comes and until that time, whenever it may be, disciples are called to be faithful and steady in serving the kingdom. So, what I want to call this is this is divided living versus united living. The final servant has a divided view of reality. There's a portion that's God's and there's a portion that's his. And many people think we think that as long as we step into God's a little bit, that's enough. And yay, we've done enough. But God's word has no place for this. There's no space for a God part of my life and a me part of my life. See, it's not our faith in God, not in the way He presents Himself in our lives. It's about Lordship. If God is Lord, then He's Lord of it all, not just a little part. The question is not whether we believe in God as strongly as we believe in our earthly kingdom, but who is Lord and Master of your life. We demonstrate that we have also grasped at power and sought to be like God. We too try to do exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden and say, okay, that's God's part. This is my part. Because ultimately, you can't steward something if you own it. So as long as I think this is God's stuff over here and this is my stuff over here, I will never steward this stuff over here. Because stewardship implies someone else owns it. So instead, I'm going to sit over here and I'm going to say, these are mine. And just like that unfaithful, the, the wicked servant, nothing gets done. Because ownership and stewardship are mutually exclusive. So it's a matter of lordship. Stewards are not owners. Stewards are not lords. Stewards do not build worlds. If we're called to be stewards in God's kingdom, we must begin by denouncing our ownership, our lordship over anything. And giving it back to Him. Nothing can be held back. There can't, remember what I said, there is no spot in this world, in this universe, that doesn't belong to God. And the sooner we get that, the more we actually come into reality. There's no freedom in divided living. There's no joy in divided living. There's no peace 
in divided living. And ultimately, all there is is meaningless. Our lives lose their meaning. When we recognize this united world, we come back into touch with reality. So as we move forward through this series, we will never understand money and possessions well if we don't see it rightly. Money and possessions show us God and help us diagnose who we actually follow. So as to not make you think that this idea of stewardship is just like some Christians, you know, oh, it's for the the pastoral staff, it's the elders, it's deacons, it's this group. No, this is the Christian life. The entirety of the Christian life is stewardship. The concept of good godly steward is not an add-on to the proper teachings of life, but instead it lies at the very heart, one author writes. Our foundation must be different than this world, which says you can do it. You are in control. Have it your way. Instead, we acknowledge that God is the one in control, and our job is to be faithful with what he loans us. And this ultimately is very huge. Our world is all hell-bent and chaotic about horizontal living, doing better than the person next to you, when in actuality it should be vertical. And remember, this is not a do more, work harder, try harder. This is more rely on the Lord. The Lord has given it to you. The Lord has given you exactly what you need. And He is the one that is going to bring it to fulfillment. Like He promises us. So imagine what life would look like if every day was seen as an incredible gift in a life that is guaranteed to last forever. Imagine what it would look like to be so certain that to, about tomorrow that you could be free to invest every hour of today doing whatever makes God the most happy. Imagine being so certain about who you are in the eyes of God that you could give yourself away in service of others and experience real joy. Well, these are not things to just imagine. These are things that we can live out here and now. So, what do we need to do? Well, first we need to recognize everything is God's. So that's our first, first task. Recognize it belongs to God. Secondly, we need to repent of comparing ourselves to others. That happens a lot. I know in my life it does. We need to trust the Master that He has a plan. And then we need to be faithful with our talent. Because ultimately, the fear that hopefully you have started to have stir up in you is, what if I'm that wicked servant? What if I'm that lazy servant? And I think that's the point of this parable. Is And I, I, I jokingly, when I met with, with Travis and Scott, and they said, what's your main point? I said, don't be the wicked servant. That's the main point. So how do we know Well, first we need to recognize our master. That's the first step. Now that wasn't enough for the servant because he didn't do the next step. And that is to recognize the gift and the reason for the gift is that he loves you and he wants you to use the gift for his glory. So get busy using your gift. Repent of comparing to others. Go and use your gift for the glory of the Lord. And ultimately there's freedom here. Because he's going to provide the success. He's going to provide the use of it. And then you will be comforted in assurance knowing that you are not that wicked servant. Now there is one more group that needs to be addressed besides the servants. Because the servants, I, I believe, are either the faithful servants or the believers. And then we've got the unfaithful servant who's kind of thinking he's there, but he's not. Okay, that probably would cover most of us in this room. But there is the chance that someone in this room is not a servant. 
Today is the day of your salvation. Now is the time. Because ultimately, we are not guaranteed another hour. We're not guaranteed another day, another year. So if you are here and this idea that there is a God that is your master and that he's called you to be a servant is brand new to you, right now, submit to that call. Give in to that call. He is your God, whether you acknowledge it or not. Isn't it about time that you acknowledge it? It can happen today. The gospel is he paid the price so that you could be adopted into his family. So if you're here and that's something you've never heard before, you can simply make that relationship happen by submitting to the call. He's calling you. He's your God. And do that now. His love paid the price even before you existed. It cost him everything and you gain everything. All you need to do is come to Christ and confess your sin and believe in him as your Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what an amazing gift you've given us in life. Lord, you were lacking nothing before you created us, but yet you created us. And just like you said with Israel, Lord, why do you love them? Because you love them. Why did you create us? Because you love us. Help us to see it that way. And Lord, that that picture of how you love us and your, your joy in seeing us use your talents that you've given us on loan, Lord, I just pray that that would become real to us, that we would be able to live lives that joyously use your talents for your glory. Help us to do that starting right here, right now. And Lord, help it to spill out into our lives this week. In your name, amen.